Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, we discuss how technology affects our everyday lives, and we will discuss politics. This is a politics podcast after all. (laughs) I am pleased to have Dr. Nancy Etlinger back on the show. She is a professor of critical human geography at Ohio State University. Her recent book is titled Algorithms and the Assault on Critical Thought. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Etlinger. Uh, Thank you, Bill. Please call me Nancy. Okay. (laughs) This is our third uh, interview, so (laughs) I'll call you Nancy. Great, thanks. In the last segment, we talked about your book and how technology is resulting in less critical thought and more societal inequities. Today, we'll discuss your new project. I had the pleasure of hearing you present on this paper at the recent American Association of Geographers Convention. So I'm excited to discuss it with you today. The title of your paper is Democracy in Question in the Digital Era. I'm just curious, what was the inspiration for this paper? And can you just talk about the broad themes? Sure. Well, the major inspiration for the paper was just my concern about serious fundamental changes that have been happening in this country, namely just major shocks to democracy. So I'm thinking, for example, of the corruption of the electoral system and in association with the Cambridge Analytical scandal. I'm thinking about uh, the January 6th insurrection, the reversal of Roe v. Wade, and the list goes on. Things are just changing dramatically. And one might imagine that, well, all of these changes have been happening so clearly since Trump entered into the national scene. But I also don't think that uh, of Trump as a leader. I think of him more as a spokesperson for growing numbers of people in the United States who are supporting him. And he actually, I think one of his talents is to follow the lead of the pulse of what's happening in terms of his MAGA base. Yeah, if the people lead, the politicians will follow. That's an old quote I love. And so it sounds like you're saying he's sort of a vessel for that. Exactly. That's right. The shocks to democracy, I think, that are in in people's minds have been occurring since about 2016 or so. But actually, I think processes have been in motion from a much longer time. If we think about what's new in the new millennium, one thing that's very new and is um, you know, the use, the widespread use of the internet. And of course, and especially accelerating in the second decade of the new millennium, the widespread use of social media. In my view, social media has been just a major source for the kinds of changes that we're seeing in terms of the organization, how it is that people organize themselves, how it is that they communicate, how it is that messaging can occur at a massive scale and so rapidly encompassing things like conspiracy theories and and the like. Yes. And um you know, I'm just convinced that January 6th would not have happened at all, or at least not to the scale it did without social media. And one of the big reasons the U.S. democracy score has been downgraded is because a lot of this, including the January 6th insurrection, the big lie. So you talked about the reversal of Roe v. Wade, and I just find it interesting regarding the recent Dobbs decision. On my Culture War podcast, um, I documented this laser focus and savvy campaign by the right 
since uh, the 1970s to overturn Roe. And it just seems to me that they quickly transitioned this movement into using technology as soon as the technology was available. Yeah, sure. The tech, tech, as soon as the technology was available, then that meant that messaging could occur on a massive scale and also extremely rapidly. And the messaging, of course, is all happening through social media. Yeah, that's interesting. It doesn't seem like the pro-choice movement got on the technology train very quickly. One might argue not at all. (laughs) That's right. In general, it is the MAGA base and the Republican Party that have latched on to social media as the alternative to mainstream media. And so social media has become a source of information, a source of entertainment, and a source of news, and uh, the stage for politics as well. That's a good segue into your, you know, in your paper, you talked about electoral system and that you want to just speak to that? Well, sure. The um, well, the of course, there's always been corruption in the U.S. electoral system. But the the real issue for most of the ills that we're seeing in society today is not that they're fundamentally new, but that they have surfaced on such a massive scale and have become so salient. And so while there's always been, there's always some kind of corruption going on, uh, the kind of corruption that occurred in the 2016 election in the United States, and also all of Cambridge Analytica's work in many countries around the world, this is something completely different from, from the past. And it is about how it is that algorithms can be used to foment fear and hatred through disinformation. In effect, what's happening is, is that the is that rather than the algorithms targeting certain areas like area that's traditionally blue and all of the population in it are traditionally red and all of the population in that red area, algorithms will find individuals with particular personality traits. Uh, So, for example, one of the things that happened in the 2016 election is is that these trait personality traits, they can be things like people who don't like Muslims, for example. And so uh, once Cambridge Analytica gets hold of that information and the way that they got hold of that information was through Facebook, then you have these ads targeting just those individuals all around the country in Trump country, in blue areas. All of those people who might have anti-Muslim sentiment, that those people will be targeted with advertisements that are, you know, about the end of the world and Muslims blowing up the country. I actually saw one of those advertisements. It's it's quite quite unsettling. And oh, so yeah. so Democrats did not use algorithms in the way that the Republican Party did through Cambridge Analytica. And so algorithms have been used in electoral politics to manipulate people. Yes. I mean, historically, campaigns have targeted with mailing different people, but this just seems to be a whole new level of you know manipulation where people don't even know they're being manipulated. And that just scares the hell out of me. Yeah, that's right. It's... Um, 
people don't know that it's happening and they have no way of parsing what is information or disinformation. And so people end up by engaging in these disinformation campaigns. And then they end up by pursuing these kinds of issues through social media. And then they become, uh, if you will, believers. Right. And then, of course, all of this tribal group think and, you know, blue people only hanging out with blue people and red people and people. There was a study where people even go to different restaurants, you know, like Republicans go to Olive Garden, Democrats go to Columbus. And to me, it's just kind of crazy. And people who move in different circles and at least are exposed to, I mean, I read things on the right and left. And so I think that's a big problem. I agree. Um, I think that the segmentation of information is a serious problem because groups are not communicating. Now, the interesting thing that's happening is that the, uh, the MAGA base itself is internally diverse so that it's not, um, for example, the uh, an investigation of the arrested insurrectionists showed that 60% of the arrested insurrectionists on January 6th were exactly what you might think. They're people who didn't go to college. Uh, they have all sorts of attributes, if you will. A lot of them might be unemployed, et cetera. Uh, but a four, but that leaves 40%, that's almost 50% that do not conform to that kind of image. And so who are those other 40%? They were CEOs, they were shop owners, they were accountants, they were doctors, they were lawyers, they were IT specialists. And so the reality is this, that the mega base is actually extremely diverse and if you think about uh, what happened at the January 6th insurrection, you've got extremely violent people, got other people there who look like your neighbor, uh, <laughs> people are there taking selfies. And so, you know, you can see the diversity of the MAGA base just in, in rethinking like who was in that crowd on January 6th. Social media enables all these different groups to do their own thing and yet also come together as the mega base. And that has to do with the how the algorithms work on social media. And so what the tech firms use, deploy algorithms to sort people into different communities, if you will, into different groups. And so there's these sorting functions. And so first of all, Democrats do not use social media the way Republicans do and the way the mega base does. And so you have these very, these diverse groups on social media that are enabled through the technology. And so basically people get sorted into groups of like-minded people, you know, by their attributes and you and I talked a little bit about this, I think, in the last podcast about data colonialism, how it is that that tech firms mine people for their personal data. 
So the tech firms have data on individuals, just like Facebook had all these this data on the population of the United States for the 2016 election that it handed over to, to Cambridge Analytica. So, uh, so the tech firms have lots and lots of data on everybody, lots of personal data. And so people get sorted into these different communities And within those communities, they don't just message each other, but specifically with regard to the MAGA base, any one person can develop memes. Memes are units of cultural transmission. That is a definition. They can be long, they can be short, but in the way that they're used on social media by the MAGA base is they are short, very short, very brief difficult to figure out. They're a puzzle. So it's play-like. It's fun. It's entertainment. And anybody can develop these memes from Elon Musk, who himself has done so, to just ordinary people. And not everybody has to develop a meme in order to participate in the game, because part of the participation is just following along and figuring out what exactly what is going on. And people end up by figuring out how to relate to other people from other groups based on the memes that they use and the symbols. And so you have these very different kinds of groups within the MAGA base, and they are sorted into these different communities by the algorithm so that they stay online, so that they feel at home. And the purpose of deploying algorithms to attract people to stay online is so that the tech firms can make their money from the advertisers who are advertising on social media. So all of these algorithms are designed to capture people's interest, to keep them interested and keep them online, because the longer people will be online, the longer they'll be able to uh, see advertisements from firms. So this is all about profitability, but of course, the whole everything becomes politically charged because all of these communities are highly politicized and share, you know, various values. My head is spinning because every day there's a news story on the negative impacts of this on all aspects of our lives. And so what are the impacts of this digitalization that you talk about in your paper regarding the far right? How does this affect the erosion of our democracy? It affects the erosion of our democracy because as social media has become the major source of information. It also has become the place where disinformation is paraded routinely. And so people can just say whatever they want. There is zero regulation. There's no regulation whatsoever. And so it's a wild west. Anybody can say whatever they want. They can say hateful things. They can make things up. This is the place where conspiracy theories have flourished. And so um, if people can't communicate, then you cannot have democracy. Democracy depends upon communication between groups. And if groups are not communicating or if they are not, if people are not interested in listening to something that, you know, something could be disinformation, it doesn't really matter to people whether or not they're messaging something that's true or false, because the game is to make 
message, to message, to make connections. And this gets back to something we talked about in the previous podcast, that in the digital era, people are very alone and people need to feel a sense to belong to a community. And that uh, seems to take precedence over anything else, such as whether or not the information one is spreading is true or false. Right. And, you know, I tell my students democracy depends on healthy debate, but not this demonization of the other where you don't even listen and you don't even know why you arrive at these things. And that is associated with, as you say, the decline of democracy. So I have to talk about anti-Semitism. On June 8th, the Jewish Forward, it's a very reputable publication that I read. It's It, it had a very long article. The title was, Elon Musk is the most dangerous anti-Semite in America. And they listed numerous anti-Semitic tweets by Musk. I'm not going to go through them all. There are a few. He quoted neo-Nazi Kevin Alfred Storm and Musk tweeted, quote, Soros hates humanity, end quote. He refers to George Soros, who happens to be Jewish. And Soros has done amazing philanthropy, which has made the world a better place, in my opinion. So I apologize for all this musky stuff, but, but I, I just think he's a major threat and he is one man with so much control. What do you think about this? Well, I agree with you. He's not the only man with a lot of control. There's also Zuckerberg and and the rest of them, plus all the people who sit on the board of trustees of these companies and, and who are investing millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in on uh, mega political candidates. So it's, it is very, very scary that it seems to me that Elon Musk, as well as uh, most Most of the people associated with social media firms have been responsible for enabling the flourishing of disinformation, hateful messaging, and anti-Semitism is something that goes along with uh, homophobism, xenophobism, sexism, misogyny, etc., and of course, racism. And so, yes, it's very scary because social media seems to be very much in control, and yet it's out of control. There's no regulation. When I say it's in control, it's in control in so far as social media and what's the dynamics of social media are governing the everyday of our lives. Yeah, and this is terrible. And, you know, with Musk, he seems sort of immature and snarky and like this is a game to him. Like he didn't like something NPR said, so he put them as a state-run media, like some sort of like communist thing, and then NPR tried to get off. And then it's hard for journalists and others to get off Twitter. I mean, I got on Twitter for my podcast. I don't like it. I tried to get on Mastodon. There's nobody on there. And this is just a collective action theory problem. And some Somehow, as society, we're going to have to figure this out. You also were talking about these changes in voting patterns. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, I mean, once upon a time, 
the Democratic Party was the party of the working class people. And that is no longer the case. So the working class people now vote for Trump or our MAGA supporters. And so the Democratic Party has largely abandoned the working class because they can't do anything for them because there has never been any kind of industrial policy really in the United States towards uh, making sure that people have jobs since uh, Keynesian policy following the Depression. And Keynesian policy was uh, very important for a long time, but, you know, it's gone by the wayside. And so whenever there's a crisis, all of a sudden there's some money given to uh, building roads, which is basically a Keynesian-like policy. But that is just not enough. That doesn't deliver jobs. And so, again, this goes back to the, the whole context for what we find today. And the context is just extreme polarization. And so what's happened over time is that the middle class has hollowed out. Our production system does not deliver stable living wage jobs to the majority of the population. And so you've got a lot of people, you know, who just are angry, they're frustrated, they're uncertain, they need people to blame for their problems. And so, yeah. of course, this is where we get into blame game politics. But if you are not going to ha develop an industrial policy to deliver stable living wage jobs to the bulk of the population, then you can't do anything for those people. Now, Trump also didn't do anything for those people, but it didn't really matter because these people are interested in make America great again. They're not interested in the specific. They are interested in some kind of a starting over, some kind of a return to something that once existed. And the reality is that for many people, this sort of mythic, wonderful world never really did exist. For, for many people, it did. But I guess my, my main point is that the Democratic parties abandoned the working class. The working class is now, so you've got a, a, a big sea change and the Democrats now appeal to what many people are calling the credentialed class. And that's people with college degrees and, and other kinds of degrees past college as well. And so, so yeah, that is just a total sea change. Right. And the Democrats have been able to win some and hold on in the midterms because in addition to this credentialed class that you refer to, African-Americans are loyal to Democrats and Latinos were. They're sort of swingy. And, you know, if the Republicans nominated the mayor of Miami, they would probably win the general election. He's probably not going to get past the primary, but that's a bit of a rabbit hole. You know, it's interesting. You said that Trump didn't necessarily help these people. I think he made their lives worse. I mean, you know, tax cuts for the extremely wealthy and just sort of screwing the middle class and, and poor people. But in, you mentioned the rural Democrats. There's just very few exceptions. I think of Senator John Tester in Montana, and he's really trying to 
uh, hang on, and he goes out to, I mean, he drives to the end of these dirt roads. He goes out in the farm. He talks to these people and said, just ignore what you hear about the rest of the Democratic Party. I am fighting for you. And he he does that. And I talked last time about Tim Ryan, who narrowly lost, and he was really making the case for rural America. I'm here to help you. But the Democratic National Democratic Party didn't send him any money. So I think that- That's right. I think that these people like Tester and Ryan, the Democratic elites need to listen to them. So that's a topic <laughs> for another day. Right. I'd like to add to that and say that according to Biden, he does have an industrial policy, and that is to revive manufacturing in the United States, notably through the, the chip industry. Uh, however, this is not necessarily going to deliver stable living wage jobs to the bulk of the population. This is uh, the kinds of mo- many of the jobs in these kinds of operations are skewed towards the upper end of the skill levels and do not, in fact, accommodate uh, low to middle skilled uh, people. And furthermore, uh, many of the processes are capital intensive, not labor intensive. And so these kinds of facilities will get, will provide jobs, but the question is how many and for whom? And I, the answer is not that many jobs and certainly not for um, so many people who need secure living wage jobs. And you know, Nancy, it's interesting. You may disagree with me on this, but you know, I just want to mention the Green New Deal. They're going to have to rename it because it's been so demonized. I just feel like that would be great for the middle and working class because if you're in your 50s and 60s and you're in, or even 40s in your West Virginia, and all you know is coal, it's a little scary to transition, but we're going to move there anyway. And a lot of these jobs are for lower school people. And I just think we need a new deal. Our bridge, since Franklin Delton, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a lot of these bridges are crumbling and we haven't had anything. And so this employs people. So, I mean, they're going to need to rename the Green New Deal. But what do you think about the Green New Deal? Do you agree with me or disagree with me about that? The idea of integrating uh, environmental justice with social justice and bringing jobs to people who need them. That is a great idea. That said, I think that the way that the Green New Deal has been constructed has been not entirely satisfactory in my, in my view, insofar as uh, the Green New Deal has the kinds of jobs that have been emphasized are roads and bridges and so forth. Those things are important. That has to happen. And yet, We need more investment in alternative sources of energy and the kinds of jobs that jobs that will go along with that and beyond just, you know, reconstructing roads and bridges and dams. And so I don't really think that things have gone far enough in terms of investment in alternative energy sources. And I guess the other thing that I am then very concerned about is the major thrust of big change has been to everybody should have an electric vehicle. And this just doesn't make too much sense to me. Seems to me that what they, what's what's happening is that one set of non-renewable resources is being replaced by another set of non-renewable resources. And we continue to have problems with the, the you know, relying on non-renewable resources. Not to mention the kinds of labor issues and so forth associated with mining the minerals 
minerals uh, that are required for electric vehicles. But I'm generally on the same page with you about integrating concerns about environment and economy and jobs and environmental and social justice. If I were a democratic strategist or operative or staffer on the Hill, I would take that Green New Deal and I would divide it up into various pieces of legislation that are palatable to different people. And I would rename it something like Make America Great Again kind of things, because I think that... You know, you mentioned electric cars. When people try to force this, then the MAGA and the Republicans, they have this reaction like, you're trying to take away my gas stoves. You're trying to take away my pickup trucks. And that is not going to get us anywhere. Yeah. Well, it's the, I, I think that one problem right now is just a matter of oppositional politics. That is to say, people are politicians and are, are interested in scoring points against the other team more than they are concerned about the issues themselves. And so that will haunt this country for years to come. Yeah, I mean, we just don't have very many people that want to work with both sides. President Biden has always worked with both sides and he's trying, but I mean, I think he was a little naive about how polarized things have gotten. You know, we, we have to, you know, this is going to rely on the electorate. Alexander Hamilton said the asses are the masses. I just think people need more information and I wish we could turn off social media. So in your paper, you use the word colonize to refer to our data. Can you just elaborate on this? Sure. Well, people's data are constantly being mined by firms. In that regard, we are being, our data are being colonized. In other words, tech firms colonize our data. They make use of our our data, our personal data becomes resources for tech firms, for firms that run political campaigns, for any one of a number of reasons. And people are not asked for their consent and commonly are unaware that their data are being mined and are being used for some strategic reason. For many firms, it's about profitability. For political campaigns, it's for electoral purposes. But basically, it is the masses that are driving the whole system through the production of their own data. Interesting. So how is data weaponized for political purposes? I mean, this is a political podcast. And who is doing this? Well, it's uh, data are used for political purposes when people's personal data are used for the purposes of targeting these people with disinformation in order to manipulate their behavior, as we were talking about at the outset. Actors are tech firms. Everybody's a tech firm. Uber understands itself as a tech firm. All firms are tech firms because Every firm has a component that is operating with using people's data. And so firms that are hired by political campaigns make use of people's personal data so that they can target them with advertisements that are customized for those people in particular relative to their likes and dislikes. So as we were talking about at the outset of this podcast, if people, if a person happens to be anti-Muslim, for example, those people will be targeted with anti-Muslim advertisements in association with a particular political candidate. 
And then those advertisements will invoke fear and hatred. Like, for example, an advertisement showing Muslims taking over the world violently. That's designed to foment fear as well as hatred. And so the idea is vote for this candidate who will support your views. And so it takes the biases of people, people who have biases, and it twists those biases through misinformation to ratchet things up as far as possible. And this is just a truly horrific use of technology. I guess I haven't thought about it as sort of bottom up because I think of technology as top down, but it's also bottom up because these technology companies sort of find people where they are. They find anti-Semites, they find homophobes, they find racists, they find anti-Muslim people, and then they sort of target them without having a blanket campaign that everybody sees. So do you think that, I mean, can they really have these targeted, bigoted um, messages to those people without the rest of us finding out? Are they, is there some, it's just like when you open up your, when you turn on your computer, you get advertisements that I don't get. Right. Don't ever, don't ever shop for a car. Oh my God. If you just look at a, if you're just looking at a car, (laughs) but in any case, I mean, you know what I mean? Because you see that happening every single day of your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we all get different kinds of advertisements and that spills over into political advertisements. And I know people uh, who work on campaigns who have two sets of, uh, what is it, IP addresses or two sets where they pretend to be anti-Semites or whatever, so they can see all that. And then they pretend to be on the left so they can see it. And, you know, that's fascinating. I don't want to do that. It would just drive me crazy and it's disturbing, but it is interesting. It's interesting, but it's also um, it also signals um, the dissolution of democracy because people are voting based on disinformation that has been fueled by their own biases and manipulated by tech firms. I, I certainly agree that power relations are not just about top down, but it's very bottom up in this digital system, precisely because all of the data are coming from people, ordinary people. Yeah, it sort of works both ways. When there was this sort of bizarre, and it's still happening, it's raging right now, sort of war on drag queens and drag queen story time, it, at first, it seemed bottom-up where some group in Kansas or wherever, Ohio, Florida, wherever, would get outraged, and then they would go to local news. And then it became this thing where there was this far-right machine with funding that would find these places, and they would fund it, kind of like the, how the Koch brothers funded the Tea Party, and it was not organic. And so it's sort of, I guess it's working both ways, top and top down, bottom up. Yes, the way it works top down is, is that the tech firms are enabling and structuring the entire system. And so as we were talking about before, for example, it's in firms' interest to make sure that people are attracted to these social media websites and that they stay, that they linger for as long as possible because it's about profitability for all the firms who are have generated advertisements. And so that's top-down. And, and the other part of it that's top-down is the way 
way the whole system is structured through, for example, sorting people into different groups so that you then have these different groups of people who receive different kinds of messaging. So that's a top down, that's all orchestrated by firms. And yet it's people though, who are driving the system through playing the game through continually messaging, developing memes, uh, passing memes on, and communicating through them. Something that popped into my head that is really disturbing to me is that, you know, there were a couple of well-meaning parents who went to school board meetings and, you know, they thought critical race theory, which is not even critical race theory, it's not even being taught in schools. And then what happened is Christopher Rufo and these sort of right-wing companies that want to do culture wars with all the money, then the top down came and then it just became crazed where, you know, school board members have had to resign, they've been threatened, their children have been threatened. And that to me is just, it, you know, I keep using the word disturbing but it's just tragic. Well, it's it's like a um, throwback to McCarthyism, but with new targets. Yeah. It's truly horrifying. And yes, anything, something like critical race theory gets politicized. People are talking about it who don't even know what it is. <laughs> and yeah. that is the, the saddest thing of all. I have a PowerPoint on it. It's so simple. I mean, it's just basically there's, you know, racism in society and laws and contracts, redlining, black tax. You and I could probably list a hundred things, you know, healthcare. And yet somehow it just got totally distorted and just off the charts crazy. So I, I want to move on. You know, I've heard and seen so many examples of how technology is being used to run the criminal injustice system, as I call it, with algorithms for template sentencing. How does all of this, what you're talking about today, relate to criminality? Quite a bit. And it does so in pretty much the same way that I talked about previously with electoral politics, except that it's not within the realm of electoral politics. So uh, we are all understood as being, you and I can are understood to a computer in terms of a set of data points. Now, if you happen to be, if your data are that if basic descriptors, let's say you're black, you are low income, and you're living in a particular area that has high crime, all of those things get correlated and then weaponized against those people who are victims of uneven racist society. And those people become criminalized. If you have never committed a crime, if you're black, if you're low income, if you live in a particular neighborhood, if you apply for credit, you might be cast as not credit worthy, even if you are, because the data points about you indicate that all of these things go together and therefore you probably are not credit worthy. So you'll be denied credit. You can access credit for wide ranging things and you can well imagine what that's going to do to somebody's life. Similarly, you could be innocent of any crime, but easily, easily be criminalized. And so it's about preemptive crime. Basically, before somebody ever commits a crime, certain people are cast as criminals. 
It's interesting. It, well, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's horrific. And right. of course, when you see maps of, uh, you know, hotspots of crime, these hotspots are not usually hotspots of white collar crime. And so, in other words, this system gets weaponized typically against persons of color, against any kind of, of group that is considered other or vulnerable. Yeah, people of color don't commit more crimes. It's just that if there's a white college student, he or she has pot, the cops don't care. And African-American young person with just a little bit can get thrown in the pokey. You know, it's in, it's interesting that you mentioned this because it just occurred to me. I mean, you're really making me think a lot, which I guess is good. <laughs> it just occurred to me that you can have a very, you know, somebody who works in the bank who's not racist at all, and they're well-meaning, but they type in some buttons and this this sort of what happens, this, you know, these racist outcomes. Exactly. So the machines learn from data from the real world and data from the real world are biased. It's not about whether or not an individual is racist. It's about this systemic racism. And it's also about the convenience, the increasing convenience of relying on algorithms for decision making, including in criminal court. And now with generative AI, like ChatGPT and Dolly and so forth, the stakes are even higher and uh, the consequences will be even worse. I, in fact, just this morning, I was reading about how it is that generative AI is going to significantly deepen racial inequalities, and notably within the criminal system. Yeah, this is terrible. I mean, I've heard that um, there's algorithms for sentencing and attorneys, yes. some attorneys, not all attorneys, but some attorneys are using AI to do almost everything. That's so, right. So Nancy, you, you've you talked about, you mentioned polarization, but it's such a salient issue. It's one of the main reasons that our democracy is getting downgraded in addition to the other things. So I just want to share a quote, and then I'll ask you to respond to it from Dr. Jennifer McCoy, who is a scholar with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Quote, at least since 1950, no other established democracy has become this polarized for this long, end quote, and she's referring to the United States. Yes. So it used to be once upon a time that the that the United States was the country with this giant middle class. And so now what's happening is, is that you've got the this uh, surging middle class in China and many other places around the world where previously there was a small middle class. And now basically the tables are turned. In other words, uh, in the United States, we are the country of extreme polarization, while the middle class is beginning to grow in other countries. And at the same time, of course, in every country around the world, in many countries, there's the growth of the middle class. Nonetheless, you also have extreme poverty as well. So it's not like when I say the tables are turned, I don't mean that countries who are underdeveloped through colonialism and post-colonialism are doing just great. I don't mean to say that at all. I do mean to say that in some countries, there is 
a burgeoning middle class while there still is tremendous poverty. And I still hear every day I hear politicians say, you know, the United States is the oldest democracy, which is not true. It depends on how you define it. And they they often say we're the best democracy in the world, <laughs> which is, we're, we're a little B sliding toward a C. And, you know, the Scandinavian, Western Europe, Canada, they're all much higher. Nancy, I am fascinated by this disparity between the far right and the left, you know, to the extent there is a left in the U.S. You have said that the left is simply, quote, out of the game and is no match for this vast, sophisticated infrastructure on the right. If somebody had asked me 10 or 20 years ago, I would have predicted that Democrats would have been better at technology, using technology. You know, I just have this stereotype in my mind of young liberals and Birkenstocks drinking kombucha on the West Coast, staying up late at night, writing algorithms to help Democrats. And I was wrong. Perhaps they were busy making games for profit instead. Why has the right been so successful at using technology to manipulate people and win elections, while the left, as it were, has essentially been impotent in this area? Yeah, it's a really, it's just an amazing uh, phenomenon what's happening right now. And and yes, I think the Democrats are out of the game. The Democrats tend only to target their own base. And when you have such an extremely polarized society, it's the fringe populations that are going to make the difference in an election. And especially when you have You have a, you know, if you take a look at the midterm elections in 2022, the Democrats won, but the more in more significant piece of information was that they only won by a slim margin. And so it's, you know, it's about 50 50, but in any one election, it's going to be the fringe population that's going to decide who is actually going to win an election. And so the Democrats do not seek out fringe populations, nor do they take their campaigns into rural areas. And so they just continue to court the people who are already voting for them. And so the Republicans have a much more uh, sophisticated strategy, even though it's a corrupt strategy. It certainly was in the 2016 election. Now with generative AI, the extent of the corruption that's going to be happening in the upcoming campaigns is something I can't even begin to imagine right now. Yes, but aside from Democrats only, you know, targeting their base, as you say, specifically regarding technology, why has the right focused on it more, utilized it more, and been successful at it? I mean, even if the Democrats are only concentrating on their base, it sounds like you're saying they're still not using, they're still not as sophisticated in in using technology. Am I right about that? I, in my opinion, yes. It's not that Trump, in, somebody like Trump in particular is sophisticated, but rather the people who are advising him are might have be technologically sophisticated. But one thing that Trump does well is to follow the lead of what people are feeling. And so that is where social media comes in. So the Democrats have just not used social media the way the Republicans have, because as we were talking about at the outset, it's the Republicans 
who have made social media their media source. And so the division is between, you know, what is the major source of information? To think of social media as the major source of information when it's through social media where all the conspiracy theories are spread, uh, this is what is so alarming and so disturbing. Now, I talked with you before about how it is that the tech firms, that social media firms, for example, will deploy algorithms that sort people into various communities. Basically, MAGA Republicans all sorted into you know their own their own communities. And then they're constantly on, whereas, uh, and they're, when I mean on, they're participating, they're trying to figure out what the next meme is all about. They're sorting out these puzzles, they're messaging each other, they're participating in politicized culture every single day. Whereas for the Democrats, it's only around electoral campaigns that people become active. For the MAGA base, they are active all the time. It's something that is continual. And so this is how you have this momentum building and building and building and bringing in many, many, many new members. In my opinion, even if a Democrat were to win the next presidential election, we still are stuck with this system where you've got this huge block of people in the United States that are really fueling what the politicians do. The politicians are taking their lead from people and from this MAGA base, which is continually attracted to social media. They don't get off of it. People are working with pieces of information that are false. And so you've got huge numbers of people who still think that the previous election was stolen. You still have huge numbers of people who think that Democrats are running some pedophile ring and are engaged in human trafficking. And, you know, there's all of these horrific conspiracy theories, which, by the way, uh, many of these conspiracy theories, uh, just to pick up on your point earlier about anti-Semitism, are rooted in anti-Semitism. These are conspiracy theories that have been remixed, if you will, and targeted to new populations to persons of color, to Democrats, to trans, uh, the trans community, and so forth. Nancy, you mentioned that regulation won't be sufficient to tame this bear. So is there anything that can be done, at least as it relates to this political manipulation by the far right that you mentioned? You know, that's a great question. I I wish I, I, I think everybody is, especially now that generative AI is on the scene and isn't, and is just being developed in so many new areas now with so many new applications. Um, I think everybody is wondering the same question. What can we do about it? I think what's really worrying is that the CEO of the company that produced ChatGPT is begging to be regulated, you know, and I think that the main point is, is that 
within these companies, there is there are no mechanisms to self-regulate. Firms that have been developing technology have no sense of accountability. They have no idea how to self-regulate. People who work for them are not trained to connect what they are doing with the consequences of their actions. And so they're asking the Congress, the U.S. Congress, who has no idea about anything, <laughs> To, uh, to regulate them. And of course, the Congress itself, it is not going to do anything very meaningful be- because it just takes too long for things. And it's there's so much oppositional politics. It's interesting that e- actually on the subject of technology, there's been more bipartisanship than with just about anything else. But even so, people in Congress, I don't think, have a really good sense of the seriousness of the problem and the the scale and the scope of the problem. What's happening right now is that people are getting really worried about what generative AI is going to do in in the upcoming election, you know, putting words in people's mouths, all sorts of absurd renditions of disinformation that are just going out of control. So I'm not answering your question because I am unsure. It is so interesting to me that beyond just the people who've been creating generative AI, I mean, the whole AI community, uh, scientists have now signed letters saying how they are so worried about what, you know, what is going to happen in the future. You know, what's happened is that these people have created Frankenstein and they don't know what to do about it. And so they're looking to people who have no understanding of what it is that they're dealing with to regulate them in a context of absolute deregulation. Even, sorry to interrupt, but even even if we could get past one party not liking regulation, you know, the Congress is a gerontocracy, which is a whole nother topic. And some of them don't even know how to get their exactly. computer rebooted. And um, Representative Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley, he is very savvy, but he's frustrated because others aren't. And there was a hearing. I couldn't even believe this. Jeffrey Hinton and some other people, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. And Senator from Louisiana, John Kennedy, asked them, he said, um, I'm not going to do his hokey voice, but he said something to the effect that, well, can we just hire you uh, to regulate yourselves? And I'm thinking, what the hell? I mean, he really asked the guy, are you qualified to do this? And, he, and if, to his credit, this person and said, well, I'm not sure it would be good if you hired us to regulate <laughs> I mean, that really happened, Nancy. Yeah, that's right. It's um, really, really sad. I mean, first of all, it's uh, it's very sad that that people in these companies can't regulate themselves. They should be able to figure out mechanisms to put the brakes on before commercialization to uh, make sure that there aren't going to be severe consequences. These people recognize that if they self-regulate themselves at this point, it's like the fox uh, watching the hen house. And yet, you know, you've got people in Congress asking them to do that, which just, you know, which, 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 which just speaks to the lack of understanding in Congress about what's going on. So um, you touched on this a little bit, but how has technology heightened this extreme negative 
partisanship that we see today? Technology uh, plays a large role. And again, we go back to social media uh, because in addition to the sorting function that I talked about, uh, the algorithms also, uh, they not only sort people into different like-minded communities, but they also rank anything that gets posted is ranked. And so there are many posts that people never see because they're ranked low. And the posts that tend to get ranked the highest are the posts that are the most sensational, the most outrageous, the most hateful. The posts that get ranked the highest are those that are the most negative, the most hateful. Uh, and, and that is what draws people in. And when people talk about going down these rabbit holes in social media, that is what it's all about is that, you know, you get angry, frustrated people who are attracted to these communities where they can share their uh, frustrations, but also develop a life online through, uh, you know, working with these puzzles, these memes, figuring out what's going on, participating in this meme culture on a, on a daily basis. But what it is that's getting messaged uh, and ranked highest is always uh, the most outrageous and the most hateful. I'd like to end these podcasts on a positive note. It's difficult today, but I, I will just say that, as you mentioned last time, social media has been there's probably i don't know there may be more positive than good but you know grandparents can see their ch grandchildren on the other side of the country or world on facebook and um the, the social justice movements me too black lives matter you wrote about communitarianism um i think we need more of it so to end on a positive note what can we all do to promote communitarianism and somehow mitigate the dark side of technology that's tough bill <laughs> i would love to give you a very positive answer there but i i am am not really sure I, I am not sure because uh, I agree with you that social media is a wonderful tool. It's, it's an important tool and people use it for organizing for social justice just as much as they use it for promulgating uh, conspiracy theories. And I guess I would just like to say that in general, the problem is not technology. It is how technology is used and how people are allowed to use it. But what has happened is, is just honestly a growing cancer in this country in terms of the abuse of technology and the unwillingness of people who have developed the technology to put the brakes on, the unwillingness or the inability to put the brakes on. I think the big hope right now where everybody's looking is Europe. Uh, it has been developing legislation and it, it's moving rapidly now towards developing quite a bit of regulation on generative AI and uh, in much broader way than it had before. Uh, and so that is, I think, what is going to create the biggest pressure on these tech companies is that they will not be able to expand their markets as um, other countries develop regulations and will not allow them to operate there. In the United States, so far, things have not worked, but that could exert pressure is going to come from outside of the United States because 
right now we have a, a huge mess here. But I do think that that's happening. I mean, the tech companies already are getting very, very nervous about being shut down in other countries. That's what they're there for. They're there for profit. And if they can't expand their markets, they are going to have to make some changes. Okay. Well, <laughs> we've managed to be as positive as we can. Well, thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, I really appreciate this. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others. Bye.